some wonderful songs that we were led in, and I appreciate that, Matt. Very good selections. Very encouraging to be with you and be able to lift up our voices and songs. I appreciate your prayer so much as you opened us. Oh, what, what a blessing it is. Something I, I don't think any of us will ever take for granted again, being able to assemble, to have a gospel meeting. We had our first gospel meeting post-pandemic uh, just a few weeks ago and uh, had, had the best turnout and attendance probably ever because everyone knew what a privilege it is to be able to come out each night of the week uh, to praise God, to pray together, uh, to strengthen this fellowship and for the preaching and the proclamation of God's Word. I appreciate so much that you have made it a priority to do this for each and every one of you who's here tonight. I know that you have many things going on. You have busy lives. I know there's graduations going on, lots of things like that. But you've made this a priority, and that means a lot to me, but it means even more to the Lord. It means more to you. Uh, personally to be able to be here and there's not a more important thing that we could be involved in than what we're doing here right now. I've enjoyed my time with uh, each one of you that I've been able to be with, the wonderful hospitality, the good meals, uh, just the, the camaraderie, the fellowship, the, the ability to, uh, to strengthen one another. Uh, I, I called my wife last night and I said, Oh, you, you are going to be so sad you missed this meeting. <laughs> you know, this, this is one of those that uh, I, I'll be looking forward to a time we can travel back through and she can meet all of you. Uh, and, and I wish you could meet her. She's my redeeming uh, uh, partner. You know, I, uh, people would think more of me if they could meet her. But, but I, I wish that she could be here. Uh, so, certainly thankful for all that she does uh, back there at home. But please keep her uh, in your prayers as I'm away from her. I want to ask you to open your Bibles to Luke, the 16th chapter this evening. That's where we're going to begin our study. I'll try not to talk uh, as fast as I started out last night, but we've got a lot of ground to cover. And uh, I, I don't want to uh, take advantage of your time in, in any way. I was holding a meeting uh, one time where my brother is one of the elders and, and had a few of those sermons that went along like yesterday. And my brother got up to make announcements. And he said, I, I just want to make sure uh, you understand, Brett, we're not paying you by the hour. You realize that, right? Uh, I do realize that. Sometimes I, I get carried away, though. In Luke chapter 16, I want you to notice there, beginning in verse 19, a text that I'm sure that you're familiar with. In Luke 16 and verse 19, the scripture says, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father Abraham, or I, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. 
And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Now that's a lengthy text, but we need to understand the context or understand at least the the entirety of this text. And and let me say, there are so many pearls in this text and and we've got to move past them. There's so many lessons that we can see. The responsibility of wealth, the need to seize opportunities to do good and share, the sin of economic prejudice in a person's life, and and what happens after death. Uh, You know, you think about that, I'd like to take a moment for each one of these, but uh, I'm I'm just suggesting some some good sermon material to some of you. But you know, we think about what happens after death. You know, a lot of times uh, we, we look at this and we notice, first of all, there's no purgatory here. There's no praying through from one place to another. Those who are there cannot come to us, neither can those who are here pass uh, across to you. There's no such place as purgatory. And we also see that there is absolutely torment in this place. You know, sometimes we, we'll look at this text to share with someone who does not believe in eternal torment, and, and they may kind of laugh condescendingly and say, I, I, you know, I remember when I believed that, but, but the problem is this is a parable. You know, I, I can't tell you whether it is or not. I don't believe that it is. Parables don't name the characters. But even if it is a parable, in order for a parable to teach the truth, it has to be based on truth, right? That's why we don't have parables about pigs flying. A parable in order to teach the truth is to cast alongside. It takes a principle of truth we already know to teach us about a spiritual truth we don't know. And so in order for this to teach the truth, it has to be based on truth, not a fairy tale, not a metaphor. So we see what happens after death. And you know, I I remember a gospel meeting that was in the area when I first started preaching and I wasn't able to get there uh, uh, to the last night of that meeting, but the preacher announced he was going to preach on what's worse than going to hell. And I thought to myself, man, I I can't imagine what that would be. And I, I couldn't make it that night. I asked the local preacher, I said, what did he preach on that night? He said, well, what's worse than going to hell is to find yourself there and to realize your family's following you. There's a lot of things in this text. So much. Our Lord is brilliant in what He's able to pack into a lesson that He teaches. But we also see here what the dead want preached at their funeral. This man wanted his family warned. I've even heard Christians critical of a gospel preacher who warns the living at a funeral about what comes after death. And they say, you don't need to beat him over the head with that. I want to tell you, Lazarus wanted his family to know. He wanted them to be warned. And I'm telling you, if somebody has passed from this life, whether they're saved or even not saved, as this rich man, I'm saying Lazarus, I mean the rich man, I hope you know that. This rich man wanted his family warned, and we need to be able to see that. But the lesson of our study is really found beginning here in about verse 20, uh, 29 down through the end of the chapter. And the, and the, the rich man was wanting uh, uh, Abraham to send Lazarus back to warn his family. And Abraham said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. So we've got the rich man's request, send them, send Lazarus back to my family so that he can warn them, so that they won't come to a place like this. And and Abraham's reply was no. They have Moses and the prophets. Now what he means by that is the writings of Moses and the prophets, the word of God. He said, they have what they need. But the rich man believed that his family needed more than the inspired word of God. 
And you know, I, I can just imagine the rich man is thinking to himself, you know, Abraham, I, I know that you were called the friend of God and, and, and that maybe, you know, scripture works for you, but you just don't know my family. You're saying that they've got Moses and the prophets, but they just don't cotton to that Bible thumping gospel preaching. They need something else. They need something more than that. They need something that'll get their attention. You know, I can relate to this rich man. Yesterday, I was preaching the sermon, Lay Aside Every Weight. I was talking to you about a time in my life, in my uh, mid-twenties, when I was uh, single and, and working in secular work. And I was, I was very caught up in all of those pursuits of, of temporal things. And, and to be honest with you, I was very worldly. I was going to church every Sunday, every Wednesday night, in order, I was scared of my dad, you know, and he, he was going to find out if I was there, but I, I was a pretty worldly fella. I, I just wasn't spiritually minded enough at that time. But I'd go to church and I'd sit through to those long-winded preachers, you know, and, and, and I used to think to myself, you know, I, I, I thought, you know, we've just got it all wrong in the church. And, and I thought, you know, these old mossback preachers just don't get it that most of the people that I hang around with, they don't like Bible preaching. You know, I think my friends that work in construction with me, they, they're not these nice little Sunday go to meeting people. They're roughnecks and cowboys. And you're not going to get them to come to church with thou shouts and thou shalt nots. I thought... You know, we need something different to reach out to these people to get, in order to get them to come to church. Maybe something social or recreational, maybe something novel or something sensational. And the rich man's idea was to have someone go back from the dead and that that would be sensational enough to attract and to convince his family. And I want you to think about it. Don't you think that we could fill this building if you would have announced prior to the meeting that our visiting speaker is going to raise someone from the dead this week? I bet we'd have every seat filled on whatever night you said it was going to happen. And so we might say, well, yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure that that would get a lot of people there. Why didn't he allow that to happen? Why didn't Abraham allow Lazarus to go back from the dead? Well, I want to suggest to you it's because Abraham knew that if people would not be persuaded, that is, caused to turn by the Word of God, then they wouldn't be convinced by a resurrection. And the reality is that all of the Jews that rejected God's Word, the same Jews that rejected the resurrection, the clear, evident resurrection of Jesus Christ. The main point of Abraham in verse 31 is that the Word of God is sufficient to persuade men to be saved and to obey God. And that's really what our study is about tonight, the sufficiency of God's Word. That, that word sufficiency, it means the adequacy or the condition or quality of being adequate. And we're saying that the Word of God is sufficient or it is adequate in the case of the rich man's family. That's what Abraham was telling him. You know, as we talk about that, there are quite a number of other passages that teach this concept of the sufficiency, the adequacy of God's Word to accomplish what God intends for it to accomplish. This is one that really stands out, and I think it's a poignant statement that Abraham uh, uh, makes here. But I want you to notice also in Isaiah 55. Would you turn over there with me? In Isaiah 55, you're familiar with verses 8 and 9, that, that God's ways are not our ways, His thoughts are not our thoughts. But right after verse 9, I want you to notice in verse 10. In Isaiah 55 and in verse 10, 
Isaiah said, For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. I want you to let that sink in, and I'm sure that you've read this, you've heard it multiple times. But I want you to think about the import of that statement. He's saying that when the Word of God goes forth, it will never be unfruitful. It never returns to God void. It always accomplishes something that God intends. It prospers in the thing for which God sent it. You know, sometimes I'm questioned after a gospel meeting when I get back home about the success of the meeting. And, and usually what folks mean is, uh, how many baptisms were there? Uh, were there any restorations? You know, I remember during this time that I was in my mid-20s living in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, I, I, um, my brother and sister-in-law were members of another congregation there, and they were having a gospel meeting. And my big brother was always doing everything he could to try to exhort and encourage me and, and try to get me out of that worldliness. And so uh, he and his wife invited me to come over for dinner and, and, and go to the gospel meeting with them. And I get to the gospel meeting that night and the preacher gets up there. And I, I'm not kidding. I think that he preached to me all through that sermon. And I, I sat there just boiling mad. I thought my brother talked to him. I mean, he told him what's going on with me because he's hitting everything. And I was so angry that night when I got up and left. I had to come back the next night to see what he'd do then. And he took in after me the next night. And every night thereafter, I attended every night of that gospel meeting, angry, but convicted. There was something in that preaching, long-winded preaching, but I didn't even notice the time. I realized I was hearing something that was so distinctive. I was so touched, not only by the severity of God, but by the goodness of God. And he was addressing what was wrong in my life. The reality was my brother didn't say a word to him. He could have preached on anything from A to Z in the Bible and he would have hit me at that point in my life. You know, people always, they'll be asked, Brett, were you preaching to me today? And I'm, absolutely, I'm preaching to everybody here. And, and if there's something wrong in your life, I may not know it, but I'm preaching to you. I guarantee you that. If that's going to upset you, it's the Word of God. But that, had, that, that was the turning point for me, brethren. That was the turning point. I, I requested the, the cassette tapes of that meeting. I literally wore them out, and that was the turning point. And I don't believe that there was one baptism or one restoration at that gospel meeting. But here's what's interesting. It was about five years later that I was back there at that congregation holding a gospel meeting. And I told the brethren, I doubt if you had any clue whether or not that gospel meeting was successful, but I can assure you I am confident I would not be here preaching today if I would not have heard the gospel as clearly, as distinctly, as plainly as I heard it that night and the following nights at that gospel meeting. And this, this is the whole point. Whenever the Word of God goes forth, it is successful in what it does. 
It prospers in the thing for which the Lord sent it. We simply need to find out what God intends for His Word to do and then trust that it's sufficient to accomplish that. And that's what I want to look at with you tonight. And it is important, brethren, that we, I heard these sermons when I was a young boy. We've got to come back again and again and again for the next generation and the next generation that they never forget this fundamental truth that God's Word is sufficient. It is fully adequate to accomplish what God says it will do, and He doesn't need our help with, by adding something to it. What He needs is for us to put the Word out there to make sure that it is without reservation, without fear or favor of man, that we preach the good news of Jesus Christ, realizing always that the good news of Christ is to some the aroma of death. It's not going to be pleasant. It's not going to be comfortable for them like it wasn't for me. But it is exactly what they need to hear at that particular time. What does God say that He intends for His Word to do? God says that He intends for His Word to draw men to Christ. And therefore, His Word is sufficient to bring people to Christ. You know, in John chapter 6 and verses 44 through 45, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Notice that. And I will raise him up in the last day. It is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now notice that. He said, those who are taught by God, who hear and learn from the Father, come to me. Well, what does that mean? You know, a lot of our, our friends that are charismatic, this is a point at which they say, oh, I believe in that, Brett. Now, I want to be taught by God, but what they're thinking is some better felt than told experience. How does God teach us? Because however God teaches us, however it is that we hear and learn of the Father is how God draws us to Jesus. How does He do that? You say, well, I don't see it here. He says in verse 45, it is written in the prophets. Where's that written? Well, among other places, it's written in Isaiah chapter 2. You're familiar with that. Isaiah 2 in verses 2 through 3. Isaiah said in verse two, chapter 2 and verse 2, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Wait a minute. That, he's talking about the day of Pentecost. He's saying that something's going to happen and, and we know when it happened. It happened in Acts chapter 2. That's the fulfillment of this prophecy. So listen to verse 3. He said, many shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways. You see that? He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now note that. How is God going to teach us his ways? He's going to teach us his ways when the word of the Lord goes forth from Jerusalem. When was that? It was when Peter and the rest of the apostles preached the gospel on the day of Pentecost. So when the gospel is preached, is when God teaches people His ways. And Jesus said, when people hear and learn from the Father, as it's written in the prophets, that is precisely how the Father draws people to Jesus. And don't miss this, John 6. No man can come to me except the Father who sent me draws him. Friend, there's no other way to draw somebody to Jesus. You see that? Not with any other method, not with any other means. It has to be that a person is drawn by the Father to Jesus, and the only way that that happens 
is when a person has been taught, has heard and been taught the Word of God, and they're drawn by that. Yes, the Word of God is sufficient to draw men to Jesus Christ. In the, in the 43rd Psalm and in verse 3, he says, Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me, let them bring me to your holy hill, to your tabernacle. God's holy hill, his tabernacle, is the church. It's the body of Christ. It is the house of God. How are we led to that? He says, your truth. Your truth is that light that's going to lead us there. That's what's going to draw people. In 2 Thessalonians 2 and in verse 14, he says, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ called by the gospel. That's like an invitation. It's like the old dinner bell. But it is the spiritual feast that we're being called to. Yes, friends, God's Word is sufficient to draw men to Jesus Christ. But God also says that He intends for His Word to save the lost, and thus it is sufficient, it is adequate to save men. Romans 1 and verse 16. He says, I am not ashamed, Paul wrote, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. And you notice that, the power of God, there's not another power. It is the power of God, and you see the word to salvation? That's a Greek word ace, or ice, however you want to pronounce it. It's the same word that is translated for in Acts 2.38, that baptism is for the remission of sins. It means into or unto. The gospel is God's power into salvation. And notice the next statement, for everyone who believes. Anyone and everyone. There's not an exception. There's not going to be someone who is converted that wasn't converted and saved and brought to Jesus and to salvation by means of the Word of God. It's not going to happen. For everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Jesus in John chapter 5 and verse 25 said, Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Notice it. Those who hear the Word of God will live. He's talking about the fact that the gospel is going to draw them in order to be saved. So God intends for His Word to draw them into Christ, to save the lost, and He also intends for His Word to edify or to build up the saved. How are we going to build up one another? How are we going to build up the young people? How are we going to build up the middle-aged people, the young married couples, the elderly? What does God say about that? In Acts chapter 20 and in verse 32, he says, so now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up. God's word, that's what you're going to find, that has that sufficiency that, you know, the word edify comes from the noun edifice. An edifice is a strong building. So edify, the verb form, means to strengthen or to build up. And that's what he's saying. The Word of God which is able to build you up. 1 Peter 2 and in verse 2 says essentially the same thing. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the Word that you may grow thereby. Growth, being built up in the faith. That's how we're strengthened. And that's the only element that builds us up. Someone says, well, Brett, you know, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 says that love edifies. You need to look at that context. He's not saying that if I love you that you're somehow edified by that. 
He is personifying love, and what he's saying is, because the problem they had was over, uh, you know, eating meat sacrificed to idols or not, and there were some that were, that were proud and obstinate, and they didn't care that another person didn't understand the truth. They weren't going to mess with them. They were going to do what they knew they had the right to do. And what Paul was saying is that love edifies in the sense that if you love your brother, you're going to seek to edify, not to cause to stumble. So what he's saying is the spirit of love in us motivates us to seek to edify our brother. He's not saying that simply me having love for you somehow automatically edifies you. The word of God is what actually does the edifying. Love in my heart is what's going to motivate me to share the word of God with you and to make sure that I'm not doing anything that's going to cause you to stumble. Oh, the Word of God is intended to edify, and it's sufficient to do that. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Notice, all Scripture is profitable. Then verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped unto every good work. That's what God's Word does. It equips us. It builds us up. And we've got a lot of brethren that are looking for a lot of different schemes to build people up. And most of it is through some form of emotionalism. Brethren, it's nothing new. Folks have been doing that for ages, trying to push the, the, the easy button and, and get the, get the uh, emotions built up. And, and we feel something and we think, oh, I must be really built up. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Just because you feel something doesn't mean it is what you think it is. Being built up is being strengthened in the faith. That's what edification is. Yes, my friend, God's Word is sufficient to draw us to Christ, to save the lost, and to edify the saved. You say, well, Brent, hold on, I see that. I mean, intellectually, academically, I can read these verses and I can see that. God intends for His Word to edify us. But look, I read my Bible every day. I get my lesson ready. Uh, for every Sunday morning, every Wednesday night, and still there's something that's just missing. There's just a void there. There's something cold, and I, and I don't understand. You're telling me the Word of God is able to edify, but, it, but I'm just not being built up. What's missing? Good question. Good question. You see, in edification, there are, there are uh, certainly two elements Certainly, I, I said that there's only one element that can edify. There is an, there's another variable involved. Let me put it that way. Like in an algebraic question or, or problem, there's a variable. You know that letter. Never under, you know I don't like math. Never understood why they're putting letters in math. But here's a variable. We don't know what it is, okay? What is the variable in edification? Look with me in Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, remember... We notice there in Matthew chapter 7 and in verse 24. Matthew 7 and verse 24. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains came, the winds blew, beat upon that house, that house stood. There's another man who hears these things of mine and does not do them. I'll liken him to a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came, the winds blew, his house fell. What was the difference in those two men? What was the difference in the strength? It was the foundation. But the foundation was based upon something in those two men. What was the difference? Was one born wealthy and the other one poor? What was it? 
They both heard the Word of God, didn't they? And there's what edifies. But there's a variable. What was the variable that came out? One did them and one did not. Good friend, I'm not saying that if you're just an earshot of the gospel and you hear someone preaching it, that you're automatically going to be edified. Don't, don't misunderstand me. In order to be built up, you're going to have to do something with that truth. You're going to have to hear it and put it to use. Maybe you need to change something in your life. Maybe you need to obey some command. But yes, there's something you're going to have to do to be edified. What I'm talking about is what can we provide as a congregation for people to be edified? I can't provide your obedience. That's beyond my ability. That's the variable that only you are in control of. But what we can do is provide the gospel to edify the saints, young and old. Yes, God says that His Word is sufficient to do just that. Now, obviously, that brings us to some questions. And, and, and the, probably the, the question that comes first is, why then, if that is the case, that God's Word is sufficient to do these things, why doesn't God's Word draw more people? Good question. Good question. Let's look at a few things the Bible says about that because the Bible has quite a bit to say about it. If God's Word is able to draw the lost to Christ, save them and edify them, why doesn't it draw more people? Well, because God made a choice to give us free will, first of all. And with free will, there are some people who simply will not receive His Word. In the parable of the sower, Jesus talks about the good ground receiving that seed and making use of it. Why don't some receive His Word? Well, because some are not spiritually minded. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I want you to notice in verse, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, He speaks about the fact that uh, God's Word is spiritual, and some people are carnally minded. Let me get, get over there in my New Testament real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I want to read this to you. And I want you to notice he's talking about the fact in verse uh, 12, Paul said, We've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. And notice also, he says in verse 13, These things we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. Now, that translation, the natural man, the New King James Version, is translated carnal in other translations. That's what he means. The temporally minded man, the man who's minded only about what's in this life, is not going to get it. Have you ever had that where you're studying with someone, maybe you're talking about the plan of salvation, and you read a passage like Mark 16, 16, or Acts 2, 38, and they say, yeah, I just don't see that. And you think, what? You don't see that. You just read it. How can you not see that? Well, a person has to be somewhat spiritual. They have to care about eternal things and spiritual things to discern spiritual things. Carnally minded people are not going to see those things. As a matter of fact, in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 8, I want you to notice there in verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. 
For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. You know, I was talking in the beginning about why it's important to realize what the living need preach to them at a funeral. And the reason that that is so crucial is because the death of a loved one is one time when carnally minded people might, just might for a moment, entertain something beyond this realm. And so there's an opportunity for them to discern something beyond the carnal and the temporal. But there are a lot of people that are not drawn to Christ because they're not interested in eternal things. They're not interested in spiritual things. And they have free will. We can't make them be interested. There are some who simply don't love the truth. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, in verses 10 through 11, Paul warns about those who did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And he said, for that reason, they'll have access to a strong delusion. They'll believe a lie instead. But what was the cause? They chose not to love the truth. They didn't care what truth is. And you know when a person doesn't care what is true and what is false, you're going to have absolute frustration trying to get them to value what is true. They don't care. All they care is what is going to provide them with whatever pleasure that they're looking for. That's a carnally minded person. There are some who are simply not willing to do His will even if they knew it. You know, in John chapter 7 and in verse 17, this is an interesting principle. Jesus said, if anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine. That's key. You know, sometimes we might, we might be saying to ourselves, well, you know, uh, I'd sure like to know what that means. I'm not sure if I'd obey it or not, but I'd like to know what that means. You know, I think that that's part of what James is talking about in James chapter 1. The man who is going through suffering... And he, and he needs wisdom, how to navigate through this suffering. We've needed that last year, didn't we? And so God says, let him ask, and I'll give freely that wisdom. But he said, let him ask without doubting. You know, I, I used to believe that that was doubting in the existence of God or, or not believing in God. I, I don't think that's his context. Because he says the man is a double-minded man, and the double-minded man is the man who is not committed to doing what God is going to reveal to him. And what God is saying there is, if that man has not made up his mind that whatever God reveals to me, whatever wisdom God gives me in his word, I'm going to apply that to navigate through this suffering. God says, if that man hasn't even made up his mind he's going to use it, I'm not going to give it to him. And that's what Jesus is saying here. In order for us to know concerning the doctrine, to understand, we have to have that willingness in the first place to do it. Lord, what is it that you will for me to do? I'll go wherever you take me. I'll go as far as the truth takes me. That was the attitude of Abraham. That was the attitude of Peter. Lord, at thy word we will. We've got to start with that. And a lot of folks don't have that. I'll tell you another reason. Because some are willing initially to obey, but they're not willing to abide in his word. You know, in John chapter 8, In John chapter 8, Jesus said in verse 31, He said to those Jews who believed in Him, If you abide in My word, notice that conditional if, you are My disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You cannot read verse 32 without taking into consideration verse 31. Jesus did not say everyone would know the truth, and the truth would make them free. He said, if 
if you abide in my word, you are my disciples and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. At whatever point that I decide, I, I, maybe I've been obedient to God's word, I've heard the gospel, I've confessed, I've, I've repented, I've been baptized, and then it comes to some other issue in my life that I must obey God, assemble on the first day of the week and partake of the Lord's Supper, and I say, oh, 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 I, yeah, I'm, I'm not willing to do that. I, I like to spend my weekends at the lake too much, but I'll do everything else, but I, I'm not willing to do that. Jesus is saying, at whatever point you decide you're going to go your own way, that's when you're going to stop knowing the truth. Now, I bet you've encountered someone that at some time in the past, this was a person who knew the truth, they understood the gospel, they could share it with people, they could teach it, but something happened in their life, maybe it was a, an unscriptural divorce or some, some immorality in their life, and they fell away. And they got caught up in something else, and years later you see them, and as you talk to them, it's almost as if they're a different person. They have no comprehension of the things that they once knew. You know, Jesus said something about that in the parable of the sower. Even what they think they have will be taken away from them. Now, they, every day, every day, folks, we're making a decision if we're going to go forward with the Lord. And that decision is, I'll go wherever the truth takes me today. And provided that happens, I'm going to understand the truth that I seek. But if I ever decide, eh, I'll do everything but that, there's going to be a, a swift change in my life, in my understanding. That's what we've got to be able to see. There are many people who are not willing to abide in His Word. The reason that more people are not drawn to Jesus, saved by Christ, and edified in the faith is because simply they will not receive His Word. And let me make this point. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. I want us to realize that God's Word accomplishes what He intends. You know, you, you might say, well, but wait a minute. I mean, doesn't God want all people, people to be saved? He certainly does, but not against their free will. You see, God has designed His Word in such a way that those who are, not will, who are not spiritually minded, those who don't love the truth, those who are not willing to do His will, those who aren't willing to abide in His Word, He's designed and revealed His Word in such a way that they're not going to get it. They're not going to be attracted by it. It's going to be the aroma of death to them. And that's exactly what He intended. You know, there in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus, after preaching to a lot of people that rejected His words, He prayed to His Father in verse 25. He said, he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. This is exactly what God intends. He's revealed his word so that some get it and that, so that some do not. That's why he says you're called by the gospel. There's a distinctive sound to that person who loves the truth. For that person who's seeking and willing to do God's will. They recognize it. I want to tell you the gospel that is preached here at Oak Mountain Church of Christ, it is different than what anyone hears anywhere else in these denominations. Even in, in some other churches that call themselves churches of Christ. Because it is the pure gospel of Christ. And that's distinctive. That's not what people hear in other places. That's why they come and visit and they say, 
oh boy, I've never heard anything like that before. Or maybe they'll say, man, that reminds me of when I was younger. I, I remember hearing preaching like that. You know what they mean? They remember when they heard distinctive gospel preaching. God's designed it in just that way. And we've got to be able to understand that what's happening is God's Word's accomplishing what He intends, and so some churches are not growing because they're the people that are exposed to the truth simply do not love the truth or, or for whatever reason. Now, let me say something here before I go any further. Please understand that that is not the only reason churches don't grow. It may be that no one's taking the gospel out here in the community. Now that's the first thing that's got to be done. We've got to make sure that the Word of God is getting out there. But provided that your friends are hearing the truth, you're talking to them about the gospel, you're sharing a, a, a Bob's sermons and Kevin's sermons with them, you're inviting them to Bible studies, and, and they're being exposed to the truth, then the variable is with them. That's my point. But don't sit here and think, well, you know, uh, uh, we're just not growing because people don't love the truth, and yet you're not even sharing the truth with them. That, that doesn't work. So I'm talking about provided that we are proclaiming the truth, not just here at Oak Mountain, but out here in our lives every day, when people are not drawn to it, it's because they're not seeking that truth. And so what, what some churches have decided to do is they've said, well, this isn't working. You know, going out here, having these gospel meetings, preaching the gospel here, teaching Bible classes, going out and sharing the truth with our friends, we're just not growing fast enough. And they decide that they've got to come up with something on their own. And they go into the same mindset of the rich man. God needs some help here. I've got some ideas. And what they're doing is they're essentially doing the same thing that Sarah did. She decided she needed to take things into her own hands. She wasn't conceiving. God said they were going to have a child, and so she provides Hagar to Abraham. And look at the mess that she created. God said that Sarah and Abraham were sufficient to have a child. They needed to trust that. And whenever we take it upon ourselves to help God, we're going to create a mess the same way. You see, the problem is that God never intended to draw people who do not love the truth, do not care about spiritual things or eternal things. And, and so some of our brethren have recognized that the Word of God is not going to draw some of these people that are carnally minded and that don't have any interest in spiritual matters. And so they've set out, set out to draw them with the only thing that will draw them, and that's carnal things. They're trying to draw the carnally minded by giving them what they want. God is, it's amazing that He can craft this revelation in such a way that the people that He intends, the honest hearts, get it. And they're drawn to that truth. That's the beauty of the gospel. We've got to trust that God's Word is going to accomplish that very thing. Well, you know, there are a lot of different things that we could notice uh, tonight that folks are doing, uh, trying to draw those. And, and one of the things that, that we see in the, in the example we started out with in Luke chapter 16 was that, that the rich man thought that, there, that he needed to use some kind of sensationalism to draw people. And isn't that what is alive and well today? That sensationalism? You know, the, the uh, use of uh, uh, supposed miracles today. 
You know, there are tent revivals or, or other type of revivals where they claim that miracles are going to be worked, people are going to be healed, and you know, they'd get a lot of people come to those, but it doesn't last. And that's what the rich man was doing. Matter of fact, the Jews had the same thing with miracles. Every time they saw Jesus, they'd say, Master, show us a sign. They weren't interested in the truth being confirmed. They just wanted to see a sign. That's why Jesus said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. That is just for the sake of the sign. He said, no sign will be given to it. Yeah, the Jews were like that. We see it today among the Charismatics, the Pentecostals. You say, well, Brett, I, I don't think that we really have a problem like that, you know, uh, among brethren. Well, I, I, I don't see that either necessarily. But you know, I do believe that this problem of, of sensationalism is uh, uh, to some degree among us. I, I remember uh, the year that I started preaching, and that, that was quite a long time ago, but uh, I was in the Oklahoma City area, and the Oklahoma Christian uh, College was there in Edmond at that time, and they've changed their name, and I, I can't keep up with, with what it is, but um, they, they were going to have some speakers come in and speak about uh, what the church needs to do in the 21st century uh, in order to grow. And this was in the early to mid-90s. And there were two speakers, and they definitely were coming at different viewpoints from the subject. But Marvin Phillips was one of the speakers there. Marvin Phillips uh, uh, used to preach at the Garnett Road Church of Christ in Tulsa. And he'd have the Tulsa workshop. And in this, at this Church of Christ, he would invite denominational preachers to come in and brainstorm with him on how to save the lost. Uh, that's how liberal-minded he was in fellowship and everything else. But he was one of the speakers. And he got up and, and was going to speak to us on what the church needed to do in order to grow in the 21st century. And what he said that night was, we're going to have to get a gimmick. I thought, what does he mean by that? He said, we're going to have to get a gimmick like they had in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. That loud, rushing, mighty wind. And I thought, he just called the Holy Spirit a gimmick. I was looking for a door. I just knew God was going to strike that building right then. But isn't that incredible that a person that would consider themselves to be a brother in Christ, a gospel preacher, would suggest that the way to grow is through gimmicks? And I'll tell you, they've got a lot of them. And that's really essentially what so many of these churches are doing. And you need to see it for what it is. I know it's tempting. I, I told you in the beginning of the study, there was a time in my life where I thought we needed a gimmick. We needed to do something to get these worldly friends of mine that I worked with to come to church. I bought into that idea. And that's what people are doing today. And I know that that is very prevalent in what we would refer to as institutional or liberal churches. But brethren, we've got to beware because those things don't just happen in a night. They're subtle. They grow. Could we be in danger of giving in to these gimmicks? Let me suggest some things that we need to be careful about. You know, there are some brethren that are looking for gimmicks in, in, this, in the form of dynamic speakers. Now, now, please understand, I am not saying that there is anything at all wrong with uh, being a good speaker. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. We need to make sure that we're doing everything we can to glorify God in what we're trying to accomplish. But what I'm saying is that the dynamics of a speaker are not what edifies people. It is the word that is spoken. Now, I'd much rather listen to a good speaker than a poor one. I, I understand that. But I'll tell you, with the word of God, my attention, my interest, and my application, I'm going to be just as edified. 
And the lost is going to be just as convicted if their heart is right when the truth is preached. I want you to look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 again. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul is speaking about the fact that God chose that by the foolishness of the message preached that people would be saved. He called it foolishness because that's what people of the world think the gospel is. It's foolishness. And God almost, uh, it has to be almost humorously, decides I'm going to use what they think is so weak. And that's going to be the power unto salvation. So then Paul says in chapter 2 and in verse 1, and I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He said, this wasn't about my speaking ability. Paul was saying, I hid myself behind the cross of Christ. I made it about Jesus. I didn't want you distracted by me. I wanted it to be about Jesus. He said in verse uh, uh, 3, uh, he said, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Now listen to verse 5. That your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let us beware that we ever say, oh, you've got to hear, brother, so-and-so. Why, he's converted so many people. Let us be very careful that we're not attributing the conversion of people to the ability of a preacher to speak. That is not where the power is. I certainly want to be as good a speaker as I can be. I want to be articulate. I want you to understand what I'm saying. But I have to understand that it is the Word of God that is going to impact people's lives. And we've got to realize that as well. And that's what I'm afraid of, is that we think, well, our young people have got to hear this guy. Or these people, of these young couples got to hear this guy because he is so good in the way that he says this. Hey, that's great. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with getting that guy, but don't make these young people think that's the only guy that can teach them. Jesus used some fishermen to spread the gospel to the entire world. They were not skilled in what they did. They were empowered because they spoke the word of God. Brethren, this is the sufficiency of the gospel that we must never forget. There are changes in worship happening in so many places. There's nothing wrong. We had to change up our worship like you did with COVID. But there are some brethren that think they can change up worship in some way to stir the emotions. One church out in California, was the brethren were complaining about the Lord's Supper just not meaning enough to them. And the preacher said, I'll, I'll take care of this. He was going to serve the Lord's Supper that next Sunday morning. And when everyone showed up, he came out dressed like Jesus to serve the Lord's Supper. Brethren, these are the efforts, these are the gimmicks. What people need to understand is the Lord's Supper is going to mean something to you if you will attune your mind to what God says about the death of Christ. And Monday through Saturday, you go out there and offer your body a living sacrifice for Jesus Christ, sharing sufferings, and I guarantee you Sunday morning, His sacrifice is going to mean something to you. And you don't need somebody dressing up like Jesus or anyone else to make it mean something. These are all externals. That's what's going on today. All these ideas that we've got to change things in our worship 
that we've got to do something different in order to be able to draw people. That is not what we need to do. And the idea that we've just got to get somebody, and, and this idea that we've got to get the most silver-tongued speaker is causing churches to end up with nothing more than a glorified after-dinner speaker, a motivational speaker. And what's happening is we're getting less and less and less scripture and more and more anecdotes. And I'm not opposed to, to anecdotal, uh, uh, you know, experiential things. I, I gave you some of my experience yesterday. I understand that it helps. What's a problem is when most of the sermon is anecdotes and just a few scriptures sprinkled in there. You know, the reason that we use these anecdotes, our own personal experience, is because it helps us to connect with the audience. I understand that. And I want to be connected with you this week as we study. I want us to engage together. But let me tell you this. What's more important to me than connecting with you is that you be convicted. Are we more worried about connecting or convicting? That's the question. And here's the other thing. I don't need you connected to me. I need you connected to Jesus. And the way that you're going to be connected to Jesus, the Word, is through His Word. But when I go to gospel meetings, and I can write down every scripture that's used in that sermon on the backside of a bubblegum wrapper, those folks are not going to get very connected to Jesus. Amen? This is exactly the kind of thing that we've got to make sure that we are reinforcing with this next generation. I heard this. But we've got to keep passing this on. The gospel is sufficient to do exactly what God says that it will do. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 4, and this will be the last passage that we notice this evening. In Ephesians chapter 4, Remember where the Apostle Paul is speaking about the fact that God, God gave some to be apostles and prophets, some pastors and teachers. And he said, for the equipping of the saints, in verse 12, Ephesians 4 and in verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into Him who is the head Christ, from whom the whole body, underline that word whole, that means every member, young and old, the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. We have a youth lecture every year. Last weekend in June, we'll be having it this year, June 25 through 27. We gear some lessons to deal with some of the things young people are dealing with. But it's not going to be just a weekend of fun and games. It's going to be a weekend of Bible study. I had the privilege of working with over 35 college students there in Lubbock. And I'll, I want to tell you, it was offensive to those young people that anyone would think they needed to dumb down the gospel for young people. That they needed to try to make it more social or more carnal. They wanted to be engaged. They wanted to be challenged with God's Word. They wanted a, a teacher and a preacher that truly loved the truth and was passionate about truth and would share that, that truth with them with that passion. That's what our young people need. We need Bible class teachers that are excited about the lesson that's going to be taught to these young people. 
and that go prepared into these Bible classes and that show these kids it is exciting to, to find these pearls, to mine out these jewels and these gems of truth. That's what young people need. They don't need gimmicks. Don't give in to that. Let us reassure ourselves that the gospel is the power of God to draw men to Christ, to save the lost and to edify the saved. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. I appreciate your kind attention tonight. I want to express my appreciation for allowing me some extra time again this evening. But I want to tell you, there's nothing more important that we could be considering. And I don't know when the Lord's going to come back, but I want to tell you, if the Lord were to come back tonight, we find ourselves in that judgment day, maybe some might find themselves in eternal torment. I just about guarantee you, you'd wish you'd have stayed here a little longer. It's not about the length. It's about what am I going to do with Jesus? What am I going to do with the truth? What are you going to do tonight? You need to come tonight if you haven't obeyed the gospel, believing in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. Confess your faith in Him, repent of your sins, and be baptized in water for the remission of your sins. Baptized into Christ and be saved. Leave here rejoicing. If, if as a child of God there's anything that you need to make right with the Lord, do that tonight. Pray to Him. Acknowledge your sin. And if you need our prayers, we'll pray with you and for you. But don't leave here without making yourself right with God and being ready to meet the Lord whenever He returns. Whatever your need is, won't you please come while we stand and sing the invitation song.